Hello and welcome to another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. I'm Dino Varelli, founder and CEO of Project Purple. And today we are back in the podcast studio with another special guest for our audience. I love having guests on. I know this is uh, this is exciting as uh, before we hit record. This is our 200th episode of the Project Purple Podcast. So pretty amazing uh, benchmark here for us at Project Purple. Thank you for everyone for tuning in every week over the last almost over four years here uh, in the podcast. Thank you to producer Sam for uh, being with us since day one. But exciting, exciting guests for us today. Um, I, we love having guests on the podcast because this is all about raising awareness and, and we bring guests from all walks of life that are involved in this space and in cancer as a whole or, and, and bringing stories of inspiration week after week over four years. It's pretty, pretty wild here as I think about that. But coming to us all the way from Johns Hopkins which is not that far from us, but maybe for our listeners out in the West Coast. And then we, we do have listeners all over the world, quite honestly, because we've had guests from all over the world on the podcast. But Dr. Michael, and I, I hope I'm going to do this right, Mike, Pish Vian, from, did Pish I say? Vian. Pish Vian, uh, medical oncologist, associate professor of GI oncology at Johns Hopkins. Thank you and welcome to the Project Purple podcast, Mike. It's my pleasure. It's really great to be here. Well, um, as is complimentary and as is customary with our podcast, this first session or segment, I should say, is always the guest opportunity. Now, you work in the PC space, uh, but this really is your opportunity to share with our audience kind of your background, how you got involved in it, and where you are today. And with that, uh, the mic is yours. Great. Thanks. And actually, if you don't, if you bear with me, I'll tell you the long story, which I think really says a lot uh, about pancreatic cancer as much as it does my personal journey in history. So uh, as Dino said, I'm a GI oncologist. I knew that I wanted to be a GI medical oncologist during my fellowship um, as we sort of sub-differentiated into different kinds of academic specialties. But when I was at Georgetown, there was essentially the entire GI tract covered with the exception of the pancreas and the biliary tree. And so by default, I got assigned to be the pancreatic cancer sort of local expert. And that was back, way back in 2007. And for those of you who know this space well, in 2007, we basically had one drug for, for pancreatic cancer, which was gemcitabine. And while gemcitabine was proven to be helpful compared to literally doing nothing compared to placebo, it really was not a drug by itself that really made much of an impact of patients. And so for many years, I, it was with difficulty that I would put these patients on gemcitabine because I knew in my heart that I was only helping them marginally. And a lot of the discussions were really about, you know, focusing on where their journey was eventually going to take them. And unfortunately, actually relatively quickly. And so I think that's what spurred me to a great degree to really invest myself in the world of clinical trials. Because clearly in pancreatic cancer, as much as any cancer specialty, there was an immense amount of room to grow, to do better, to help patients feel better, and of course, to help them live longer as well. Um, but we had a long way to go. And I started really getting engaged in writing several clinical trials and also participating in other national and international trials. And so in 2011, when the data came out from the French for Fulfirinox in 2013, when it came out for gemcitabine and NAB-Paclitaxel, these are our two 
standard cocktails that we use for pancreas cancer. When those cocktails came out, it was life-changing for the patients that I saw because basically gemcitabine by itself, it would slow the decline, but patients really still just declined. They would come in feeling badly uh, because pancreatic cancer is notoriously symptomatic. It causes people to feel pain. It makes them very tired. They lose weight. Even if they're um, really trying hard to eat, they still lose weight because the cancer robs them of their calories. And then any other, a number of other direct side effects, the symptoms can occur from the cancer. And so I just watched patients decline, albeit at a slower rate when they were on gemcitabine. And all of a sudden with Pulfirinox and with gemcitabine and Paclitaxel, we were able to reverse that trend. And it's not all patients, but it is the majority of patients who actually see their quality of life either level off and plateau, or in many cases, actually improve. And some of my patients get back to the point where they're feeling normal. Now, this is still not curative therapy. And when I say they get normal, they have this period, this sort of interlude between their diagnosis and when they do ultimately succumb to the cancer. But that interlude, whether it be four months or two years, can be just an absolute blessing psychologically, emotionally, and physically for these patients. So it's been a real siege for me, for patients who are treated for pancreatic cancer. Now, having seen those, those, that progression, that improvement with just plain old standard of chemotherapy, drugs that for the most part have been around for a long time, it also gave us a window of opportunity to start to ask questions that were a little bit deeper and took a little bit uh, longer time to assess. And what I mean by that specifically, my area of research focus has been in the space of biomarkers, of looking at certain molecular genetic uh, RNA protein markers that make cancers susceptible to certain kinds of specific therapies and, and almost always certain, certain specific therapies that we wouldn't have otherwise used. But the reality is it takes time to do most of those tests, even under the the most rapid of circumstances, we're talking at least two weeks, often four weeks or more. And patients who are newly diagnosed don't have four weeks to wait for an answer to see whether or not they have a specific biomarker in their tumor. And so being able to get them on one of these newer therapies, I say newer, they're 10 years old now, but one of these newer therapies bought us that window of time to then begin to initiate all of this testing that we're doing. And then if we did find something, which by the way, occurs about 25% of the time, but if we did find something in those 25% of patients, we also had the time to get the drugs for them, either uh, in the context of clinical trials or in the context of uh, um, um, off-label therapy. And then we would get them started. And sometimes it can make a very dramatic impact. And that's really the theme that I've stuck with for the past now eight to 10 years focusing on clinical research, clinical trials that are biomarker-based, trying to identify the exact drivers that make a tumor or make a pancreatic cancer susceptible to treat to certain specific treatments. So, and this is, and this is super timely. Just three weeks ago, I, I took a call from a survivor who's been battling for five years. And, you know, being in this space now 12 years and as a well going it through my own personal experience with my dad and so many families along the last 12 years, 
Mike, there's this frustration that, you know, in, in specific, like the, I was talking to this five-year patient, right? Like he hit, they, they hit their five-year window and, you know, everyone in this space says, oh, five years, that's really the window of survival. Like when you're past five years, but I, I think like we're, I'm seeing more people getting to that five years, but still battling and still on Fufluronox, still on some sort of cocktail. And, and and this patient was kind of sharing their frustration in the fact that, you know, it's been five years and yeah, they're still alive, but, you know, that quality of life hasn't been what has, I wouldn't say promise, but what everyone has said, right? And I think part mm -hmm. of the space, and I'm going to get to my point here is that, you know, we, we put so much pressure on getting to five years because that's what's considered a, here in air quotes, long-term survival, right? And and people feel like when you reach that point, like it's like, I think maybe we have done, and I say we as a collective whole in the awareness space, maybe a poor job of messaging that like, you know, five years is is the is the time where you know you can feel comfortable and and let off the gas but this disease is so complex and now bringing it back to you know where your story here where you know that there's all these biomarkers and I I do feel that every in in my experience in 12 years that I've never seen like two two patients go down that same road you know in terms of you know there's some patients that do really well on fluoronox you know like that can do you know, into the, you know, I've got a guy that I know, I mean, he's not in this part of the, the, the country, um, he's up in Canada, but he's on like 67 rounds of Lafloranox. you know? Um, there is a lady locally that I think is on like 40 something rounds, you know, but then there's the people that do two rounds and then they, you know, they, their body reacts so violently to the treatments that they just, you know, they can't do it anymore. They have to like pull back. So, I commend you one uh, for all the work you've, you've done, but it, it is so complex. Like mm -hmm. every case is so complex. I feel mm -hmm. like that's where we, we've, I, I, I mean, I, I feel like the space we've gotten kind of to this point, not, not so much to maybe to a tipping point, but to like a wall in the sense that we've realized like how complex each case is individually. And it's not one size fits all, which I think is a little bit different than so many other cancers out there. Yeah. Yeah, um, there's a lot to unpack there, but I think these were all really excellent points. And, I, and I'd like to go through the answers kind of systematically. First of all, I definitely come at it from the perspective of uh, the only time I really talk about timeframes, and particularly the five-year timeframe, are in the patients who have curable disease. And that's because the data tells us that, and this is true actually in many kinds of cancer, that if a patient makes it to five years after having their cancer in, uh, treated as, as, uh, uh, with an intention to cure, so they've had surgery, they've had chemotherapy, they've had radiation therapy, whatever they're going to have, it was done with the intent to cure their disease, and now they're just being watched. It's just mm -hmm. being monitored. The reason five years is such a critical uh, threshold is because of all of the patients with pancreatic cancer who undergo uh, curative therapy, the most of them, unfortunately, as we know, the statistics don't make it to that five-year threshold. But if you make it to five years, then the chances that your cancer will ever come back is less than one percent. Do we all have, you know, the six-year recur or the ten-year recur? Sadly, yes. 
but those are very much the exception and not the rule. And so we don't, we do put our, take our foot off the gas pedal. And I personally no longer do CAT scans and other assessments. I have colleagues that will go to 10 years and we don't really know what the right answer is there. But the point is that their chances of long-term recurrence after curative therapy is very, very low after five years. It's a whole different scenario for a patient whose cancer has, is not curable. And we know, unfortunately, with pancreatic cancer, like most solid cancers, the only ability to cure the cancer is dependent in the end upon a surgeon putting in a knife and cutting out the tumor. You know, testicular cancer and some ovarian cancers are probably the only solid organ curable treatments just with chemotherapy or radiation therapy. So the, it, for as long as the cancer or a tumor is present in the body, there is always active cancer there. And it can be suppressed. And in some kinds of cancers, it could be suppressed for years, even decades, but it's still there. And I feel like we, um, we can't take our foot entirely off the gas pedal. It's really about how much can you let up on the gas pedal to still maintain control over the cancer, but balance that with not making the patient sick and allowing them to have their quality of life. And so that gets to the point you were just saying, that balance is very much of an art of cancer care and not a cookbook algorithmic medical textbook decision-making process. Every patient reacts differently. And I tell every patient I meet that that's the case because I don't know how they're gonna do with chemotherapy. And there's nothing that I've seen in terms of side effects that predicts for who tolerates it well versus who tolerates it poorly. I have, I've had 80 year old frail looking men and women who sail through fulfirinox, and I've had 35 year old young robust men and women who just are miserable with fulfirinox. And the same is true for gemcitabine and nabpaclitaxel. So, you know, what I tell patients and the exact conversation I have with patients is, here's what I'm going to tell you about the chemotherapy. Of course, I go through all the potential side effects and how we're going to manage it supportively, all the anti-nausea medications and the other things we're going to give. But what I tell them is that the most important visit we're going to have is the second visit um, um, after you've started chemotherapy. Because every patient's different, you have, I'm going to give you the standard package of chemotherapy, and you're going to tell me if it was miserable, if it went really well, or if it was somewhere in between. And then it's my job as the quote-unquote artist trying to really tweak and adjust the treatment. It's my job to find where you need things to be tweaked and adjusted so that the second treatment goes much better than the first. And, yeah, and I tell patients, usually by the second or third treatment, we really get things on a balance where they're actually feeling um, that they can tolerate this and even tolerate this long-term. The other um, downstream discussion there is also how do we get them to tolerate it long-term? And there are tools that aren't as wild, wild, widely accepted, even in the academic community, that I wish would be employed more. So, for example... We don't really have a consensus in the, in the worldwide and especially academic community. What we should do for a patient with a metastatic disease that's spread, that we can't cure, that they're going to need to be on therapy forever, they get started on fulfirinox and they get four to six months of fulfirinox and they do great. Their cancer shrink, they're feeling good, 
we don't know what we're supposed to do next. There um, are colleagues of mine, you know, world leaders in pancreatic cancer who choose to stop treatment and just watch and wait. There are other colleagues of mine that say, we just got to keep pushing forward and we'll make adjustments. And, and as many of your listeners probably know, the oxaliplatin is the real, you know, the real devil in the, in the treatment because it really can cause long-term neuropathy, num- mm-hmm. nerve problems. So maybe they'll drop the, the oxaliplatin, but continue the rest. And then there's people like me who fall somewhere in the middle. And I, and I borrow what we know from colorectal cancer and I back off to what we call maintenance therapy which is just a single drug, low dose, single drug that I hope that maintains just enough pressure on the cancer cells um, without completely letting my foot off the gas pedal. That's fascinating. You know, Mike, I've never heard anyone put it that way, but, you know, again, doing this for as long as I've had, I mean, we've had, I've, I've interacted with patients that have had both, all three of those scenarios. But it's fascinating. I, I, can, I, I can imagine. And, and I'm telling you, I've had colleagues, again, world leaders, some of the people who were in, involved in the initial development of folks, yeah. you know, say we should stop after six months. And then, you know, equally prominent world leaders say, no, 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 you should never let your foot off the gas yeah. pedal. We have a little bit of data. There was a French study done about two years ago where they, with Fulpirinox specifically, there was a French study done which suggested that if um, we continue full full furanox full force and actually they only gave it for three months so this this study was what do you do at three months not Mm -hmm. not even six months so they after three months they continued full furanox full force or they backed off a single agent 5-fu 5-chlorouracil and what they found was that the survival was the same but of course the tolerance was much better with the single drug and based on that um, single randomized phase two study, I actually adopt the 5-FU single drug approach. But again, I think reasonable, very reasonable people might have, might choose a different path. Just one quick comment about gemcitabine and napacotaxel, our other common regimen, is um, that they, there also is a debate exactly how to use that, that cocktail because we know that it's generally better tolerated, um, but it can cause in particular effects on the blood counts. And those can become uh, um, very difficult to manage and patients need to have delays in their treatments, et cetera, et cetera. And there's a couple of studies that have taught us, retrospective studies that have taught us that giving it every other week actually is just as effective and much, much, much better tolerated. And I've actually had a few patients on gemcitabine and nabpacotaxel every other week for a year and a half, and they feel completely normal. They travel, they do what they want to do. They come in once every two weeks, get their infusion. Maybe they're tired per day and then that's it. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. I want to back up, go all the way. And you you had said something, you know, originally, you, you know, uh, in your opening, you said about biomarkers. Mm-hmm. And I know for our audience listening home now, this was a change, I think, two or three years ago I, with, with the pandemic it all got kind of, the years kind of get confusing. I, and it's also Monday morning here that we were recording this. Uh, everyone who gets diagnosed with pancreatic cancer has to have genetic testing. That was like a mandate that was pushed out, I think three years ago, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I want to go into this in the sense of, you mentioned biomarkers. And I know statistically what it's between five and 10% 
of the pancreatic cancer cases that are diagnosed here in the United States have are from some sort of genetic marking, right? Like a, mm-hmm. or a genetic mutation, I should we should say, like a BRCA, a palpy, mm-hmm. an, an ATM type of mutation, Lynch syndrome, just to name a few. But are we missing something here? And that other ninety percent potentially, <laughs> you know, it, it, you, you chuckle. Um, in the sense that just hearing you talk about like how and and just this conversation on patients react differently, we don't know why. Is there something else underneath the hood that potentially we are missing? That potentially, I, I mean, to think about this is kind of like head spinning a bit, right? Because you yeah. think about the you know the sixty thousand plus people that are diagnosed. And okay, so we say like, let's even say for round numbers, 10%. So we know 6,000 people are going to be a BRCA gene mutation, let's just say, or ATM. But what about the other, you know, 54,000 plus people that potentially there could be some sort of similarity in the molecular makeup of those tumors that potentially could be a reason why they fare well with certain drugs? Right. No. Um, so a lot to unpack there also, but I really want to um, really want to jump on the first comment you made that it's a mandate that patients get genetic testing. It is absolutely a mandate, and one hundred percent of pancreatic cancer patients are supposed to have genetic germline. Germline meaning the, the genes that they were born with, their normal uh, healthy cells. What are the genes in there, and do they harbor a genetic mutation? that over the decades of life leads them to develop these cancers. So yes, 100% of the pancreatic cancer patients are supposed to be getting tested. The testing rate as told to me by a company who has a vested interest in this space um, is about 40 to 50%. And it is maddening, maddening that, yeah, yeah. And it's not, it's not unique to pancreas cancer. I mean, there are other kinds of cancers for w- in which there are really, really powerful genetic biomarkers that lead to very effective therapies that testing is only about 70% in lung cancer, for example. You know, um, I've got a, a friend of the family who was just diagnosed with lung cancer at a young age. And we like threw a party because he had one of these genetic mutations because the survival for patients with those mutations is measured in years now for lung cancer, you know, five, six, seven, eight years Mm -hmm. versus eight months with just chemotherapy 10, 15 years ago. So yeah, I I just can't understand why physicians aren't testing all the time. And I really can only, I'm out of ideas. I can only encourage patients to be their best advocates and really make sure that they ask their physicians, did you get my genetic testing results? And then second of all, to also remember that the other NCCN guideline, the other sort of a national standard is uh, 100% for genetic testing for the genes they were born with, but then for every patient with advanced cancer, that they should also have their tumor, tumor tested sequence, because yeah. tumors are different than the genes they were born with. And the percentage of patients with uh, inherited mutations is five to 10%. The percentage of patients who have uh, a therapeutic mutation or therapeutically actionable mutation is upwards of 25% um, when you look in the tumor as well. So really we should be getting both tests on every patient. Now to your comment about, you know, are there things that we're not seeing? Absolutely. Um, and I think that that's just unfortunately 
that the, that the science is still lagging, but there are, are, are very, very smart people and very, very broad-based efforts. And I'm very happy in the, in the pancreatic cancer community, very collaborative efforts where people are working together all the time to try and understand what it is about those other cancers that make them uh, that might make them susceptible to one treatment or another. And I'll give you a couple of examples. Probably the best example is in these 75% of patients for whom there's no genetic abnormality uh, that we can identify that may, may uh, predict for a response to one therapy versus another. There have been some really broad-based efforts. Uh, I'll give credit to the group at University of Toronto who've done a lot of very extensive genetic and molecular sequencing and there is a potential potential biomarker that they're now actually trying to prove in the context of a definitive phase three trial. It's called GATA6. And, um, you know, we'll see if it bears out. It's not a test that's routinely available on, on just sort of clinically available labs. But if this study proves positive, then maybe it will be in the future. And then there are going to be other drivers that people in the scientific community just sort of learn about. And um, I'll give you another example. There are a series of trials. There's at least four trials right now, which are, which are doing using one or two different drugs to target something called an MTAP deletion, MTAP. It's another, yet another gene that gets lost in certain kinds of cancers. And for, and this, in, in this case, this gene is pretty broad based across many different types of cancers. Um, but when that gene is lost, there are new therapies that may be more powerful when that gene is lost. And so we're now starting to look for that. And in pancreatic cancer, I mentioned a second ago that up to 25% might have an actionable genetic mutation. Well, this gene, this MPAP gene can be lost in upwards of 40% of pancreatic cancer patients. So we may be starting to get upwards to 50, 60% of patients who have these so-called actionable alterations. So the, the short answer to an otherwise very long answer is that um, I think the science is, is going to show us more and more what's driving these cancer cells. Now, the only issue with the um, targeted therapy, and, and this is my per personal preferred area of research work, but it also has its limitations because the one universal, uh, universal reality about targeted therapy is that cancer cells 99% of the time will learn to become resistant to targeted therapy. And sometimes that resistance might develop after 10, 20 years. Some of the, some of the original gastrointestinal stromal cancers and the very first biomarker therapy, which was called Gleevec, um, that there are still some patients who are on that study from 20 years ago, but there are patients that were on that drug for 10, 12 years, and only then started to have developed resistance. In pancreas cancer, for some of the biomarkers that we have, that resistance develops much, much quicker. Um, and it's usually anywhere from about six to 12 to maybe 24 months. So I just want to rewind here for a second. So when we talk about, when you talk about targeted therapies, so you're talking just for our audience at home, finding these people that have this genetic variants or, you know, these deletions of potential genes, creating a therapy to attack the cells based on that genetic marking. And then in hopes of potentially 
I, I wouldn't I wouldn't word wouldn't use the word eliminate, um, but suppress the cancer cells from doing what they traditionally would do without this targeted therapy for that cell to kind of hibernate it, put it in the back, isolate it, and don't let it do the damage that it normally would that we traditionally see in in, in a common cancer case or pancreatic cancer case uh, for that matter with a patient. Right. Yeah. And that's exactly right. So, and, and go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say, and to take that a step further, the one, the one hopeful thing about the targeted therapies, I, I was pessimistic that that resistance may eventually develop, but the one area which maybe, maybe, maybe they'll increase the cure rate are in the patients whose tumors are removed. And, and again, your audience probably knows that that's only about 10 to 20% of all mm -hmm. pancreas cancer patients, but nevertheless, in the patients whose cancers are removed, if they have a certain actionable biomarker and we treat them with the appropriate targeted therapy, might we actually increase the cure rate overall? And there's at least one clinical trial um, ongoing in the in the BRCA1 and 2 space that's trying to ask that question. It's a, it's a national cooperative group study. It's led by um, our good friend, Kim Rice Binder out of the University of Pennsylvania. And she's asking the question as to whether giving a PARP inhibitor for BRCA1 or BRCA2 mutated pancreatic cancer patients who had surgery, whether it will actually increase the cure rate. And I'm guardedly optimistic. It's still pancreas cancer, a tough cancer, but there are some data in lung cancer, which is just as tough a, lung, a mm -hmm. cancer that giving these target therapies after surgery might increase your cure rate. So fingers crossed, we've got a couple of years before those results come out. So, and this was what I was going to jump in before. This sounds a lot like, and correct me if I'm wrong here, Mike, like personalized medicine, because we're looking mm -hmm. at each individual case, looking at the biomarkers of not only the individual, their genetic makeup from what they were born with, but then looking at each tumor, because the tumor may have a different makeup genetically, and then personalizing a cocktail of drugs or a treatment protocol that potentially could be very different than someone who comes in and walks off the street and you know is diagnosed with pancreatic cancer a very similar way. Yeah, it is absolutely precision medicine. Awesome. Uh, I, you know, it, it's, it's, when you said 40%, like you, we're, we're not recording video here, but you saw me like shake my head in, in disgust here because it's so fascinating to me, you know, here we are, you know, what, three years, I think, since the, that mandate came down and, you know, those numbers don't lie. It's just so, and, and I hear it on our end, you know, when patients call in, you know, we always try to, when we talk to patients with our, with our programs, we, we advocate that they get genetic testing. And I know that there's calls where patients, you know, unfortunately don't go to a high volume center or, you know, they just, they don't have good, good service as, as we say in this space, um, where they don't get that testing. And, you know, the other scary thing is I've had, you know, looking back and, and, you know, over the last couple of years, you know, a lot of patients families will say, well, my dad got genetic testing, mm. but it's never dawned on me to say, okay, that's great. But did they test the tumor as well? You know, mm -hmm. so how many patients are just getting that germline testing? 
on themselves, but not on the tumor. You know, I, I yeah. wonder, and you know, you know, we don't have a, you know, this isn't Canada where I know in Canada, you know, it's like one-stop shop, you know, where they, they do the same thing across the country for the most part. Right. Whereas yeah. here there's multiple institutions, there's insurance, you know, who knows what's, what, what, kind of care the patient's getting, you know, from, you know, if they stopped in at two different facilities, it's, it's kind of scary. It is, but you know, the, uh, having worked with the groups a lot there, there is so much available commercially that there's no excuse for any oncologist anywhere in the country, you know, however, no matter how remote or how infrequently they take care of pancreatic cancer, it is completely uh, commercially available. To be honest, you know, we do have an in-house system at Hopkins. But I would say that we probably use um, these commercial vendors three times as much as we use our in-house systems. So it, there's really no excuse. And it's all, you know, it's all online. Yeah. I sit here on my computer and I <laughs> fill out a portal online or I can have my assistants do it for me. Um, depends on how staffed you are. We're not yeah. that staff, so I do it myself. And it takes, you know, it takes five minutes. It doesn't take a long time. It's not rocket science. Um, <laughs> But, you know, I, I, I think that the other thing, and I think this is, you know, we've only gotten to know each other for now about three months, you know, but I'm so excited about what you all are doing in Project Purple. And if I can sort of segue from this, this genetic testing discussion into one huge implication for genetic testing that we really are just scratching the surface of is the ability to do cascade testing and cascade testing you know, the term really means what happens downstream. You test the patient, they have a germline BRCA mutation, and you then, uh, it prompts you to test multiple unaffected family members, and all of a sudden, you're unearthing all of these at-risk patients. And so, a couple of, couple of points. One, there was a study done that they looked at known germline BRCA1 and BRCA2 pancreatic cancer patients. That And then they reverse engineered and looked at their family history to see if there was any discernible family history of breast, ovarian, pancreatic cancer, or prostate cancer. And less than half of the patients had any discernible family history. And I tell uh, that I use that data point to tell, you know, my, the people I speak to, my colleagues, that we should never use family history as a screening tool to decide who we should be testing because you're going to miss it. But second of all, when you do do the testing, then you find a patient who has a germline BRCA mutation. Please, you know, of course, family members have their individual autonomy and right, but please try and encourage the family members to do testing as well. Because we're talking about BRCA, and here in Project Purple, you're talking about pancreatic cancer, but actually BRCA mutations lead to breast and ovarian cancer much, much more frequently proportionally. And those are curable cancers. So, you know, please let's save these poor uh, patients from getting these potentially preventable cancers. And even in the realm of pancreas cancer, there are data coming out. There was a Hopkins study published three years ago now to suggest that patients who are screened for pancreatic cancer because they harbor a BRCA mutation, that their cure rate, they still get cancer, unfortunately, but when they get cancer, it's found earlier and their cure rate is four times higher than the national average. You know, th th this is, uh, 
I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, this is how we get to raising the rates of survival, right? Early detection, mm -hmm. prevention. I, I, I honestly, and this is just me going on a limb, I think we've got to do a better job of prevention, right? And, and how we get there is, you know, I have said this before on the podcast, knowledge is power, right? Like, so if you know you have these mutations, so i.e. you have a family member who's had breast cancer, uh, pancreatic cancer, colon cancer, um, ovarian cancer, you know, because of a genetic mutation, get into screening, you know, get, it doesn't, you know, it's gonna, it's gonna prevent cancers in the long term, but get into screening programs, there's plenty of them around the country now, you know, for early detection for a lot of these uh, genetic mutations, um, yeah. knowledge is power, and it's going to save you you know, a lot of angst and a lot of anxiety down the road by knowing, you know, that you have one of these genetic mutations and you're in a screening protocol and you're aware of it. So when mm. you go to the doctor and you don't feel right, you know, you're not playing uh, a guessing game, trying to figure out what's going on, um, you know, with your body. Um, but I, I truly believe this is how we kind of really change the, the, the playing field, you know, right. from a preventive standpoint, you know, of, of getting people diagnosed early on. The other thing too, when you're in those screening programs, as you know, you know, you're, the likelihood of finding someone at a stage one versus a stage four go up dramatically, right? Like within yeah. months, you know, you could potentially, if you're in a screening program and you're going even every year, they're going to be able to see something going on a lot sooner, hopefully, mm. um, than mm. they would if, you know, you waited 10 years and then you go to the doctor and you've got a, you know, a stage four diagnosis. Yeah, no, you're so right. And and there's, there's all these sort of very playful um, banter back and forth between physicians for those like me who treat primarily stage four cancers and we're trying to help people live a year longer, yeah. um, which, you know, is definitely my reason that I exist. But at the same time, I have my colleagues in, you know, I don't know, they treat heart disease or they treat whatever. And the decision they make and the studies they do can potentially prevent, can prevent, not cancer, prevent uh, um, a, a terminal disease in literally millions and millions of people. So absolutely prevention is always the better way to go. I will throw out there, I'm not sure if you're aware, there's some very exciting studies that are just starting to open of prevention therapies for high-risk cancer patients, including there's one in Lynch syndrome. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's officially open yet, but it's an immunotherapy-based Lynch syndrome prevention, cancer prevention study for the first time ever. And um, to give a nod to my colleagues at Hopkins, uh, Dr. Zaidi is, has been working on a KRAS vaccine for a while. She's been testing it in patients with active cancer and is now ready to move it in the high-risk cancer pancreatic cancer population in the hopes of actually being able to prevent the development of pancreatic cancer with just a simple vaccine. So it's stay exciting. tuned, but it's really exciting science. It's awesome. I love it. I've got a couple questions here for you. And uh, as I always say to our guests, these are loaded. They're never easy. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I know we're, we're just coming off uh, the American Association of Cancer Research meeting. Um, I know I asked this to a, a good friend of yours, a colleague the other day on his podcast, because he was down there, Dr. Jonathan Brody over at OHSU. And uh, 
the, the question that I brought up, and, and this was coming off, I saw at the AACR meeting, there was a panel on pancreatic cancer and, and there was a bunch of your colleagues. And I, I think the discussion, and, and I'm probably not doing it justice, was, you know, here we are, you know, I think, you know, 30 years in uh, for some folks that have been in this space. And, you know, we're still having kind of the same outcomes uh, that we had 30 years ago, right? And and I'll just go back, you, you know, you mentioned when you started your residency, you know, back in uh, 2007 at, at Georgetown, you know, you're studying, you know, gemzitabine, uh, uh, you know, and, and that's still being used, right? And some mm -hmm. of the drugs that we are using today are the same drugs we used, you know, 30 years ago. The Whipple's still the Whipple, right? Like not much has changed. I mean, I shouldn't say that. The Whipple has gotten better, right? Like our, our surgical yeah. outcomes have gotten tremendously better than where they were when we started, but, you know, not much has changed from a drug standpoint. So the, the question is, like, how do we get better from a clinical perspective, from where you sit in your chair? Like, what are some of the things that the community can do to get better at this? Yeah, it is a very loaded question because um, I can tell you that I have the privilege of sitting on some committees that are meant to sit and brainstorm as to what the next best potential avenues of treatment are. And I sit in the room sometimes with the smartest people in the world. I'm the lowest man on the totem pole. And yet there's really not any great ideas that are brought up. Pancreas cancer is just biologically an incredibly difficult cancer to beat. Um, so what I, but on the other hand, on the more positive side, on the glass half full side, I have definitely seen progress. Sometimes it's incredibly slow but it is systematic. And um, in the world of immunotherapy for pancreatic, pancreatic cancer, for example, which we know doesn't work for 99.5 of pancreatic cancer patients, the, um, we know that immunotherapy works in general for other kinds of cancers. And so it's really just more about understanding why it doesn't work with pancreatic cancer. And the number of studies, very good high quality studies that have been done, that have been systematically teaching us about what mechanisms of resistance are in play to prevent pancreatic cancers from being responsive to immunotherapy, it's steadily increasing. And I think we're getting closer and closer to the glass ceiling to finally break through and say, we finally may learn how to make immunotherapy work for at least some pancreas cancer patients. You know, we'll take 10% or 20%, whereas we're right now we're basically at 0%. So I think just really, really good collaborative science um, well-designed studies that are sort of highly uh, in, uh, thought through. The pancreatic cancer community, again, is highly, highly collaborative. I think um, I say that with a lot of, you know, uh, brotherly and sisterly pride. Um, I've uh, People at the absolute top of the field are an email away and will never hesitate to take a minute to help you through an idea, to vet concepts through, even to just field uh, uh, a question about how to manage these patients. It's really going to take a community effort. And then the other thing I would say, <laughs> I, I was aware of the conversations that were happening at ACR, and even within some of the pancreatic cancer groups, it was a lot of sort of underlying cynicism and nihilism. And that's one thing we have to continue to fight against for pancreatic cancer. You know, we did a study, uh, actually, I'll give credit, AstraZeneca did a study. I I was just sort of the nameplate there, 
but they helped me. They actually be part of the study where they um, they purchased hundreds of thousands of insurance records from patients across the United States. And they asked some fairly simple questions. And one of the questions we asked that, that was asked was, when you have a, a diagnosis code for pancreatic cancer, and then you look at the patient six months before and six months after, just by insurance records, you find that 60% of patients do not get any treatment at all. Nothing, not surgery, not chemo, barely, barely even palliative care. 60%. So you talk about 60,000 patients in this country. That is, I can do that. That's 42,000 patients a year. That might not be right. Um, who are not getting, sorry, 36,000 patients a year who are not getting any treatment at all if that data is correct. And, and I don't have any reason to believe that data is not correct. So those are the patients who, and we hear it all the time, those are the patients who primary care doctors, gastroenterologists, family members are saying, oh my goodness, you've been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. Well, you better go and get your affairs in order because this is the end. And it drives me crazy because we see patients um, come to see us, feel miserable, and then within a couple of months of getting started on treatment, actually feel better and rescue their quality of life. And yes, it's only for six months or only for a year or a year and a half, but to have that interlude is just a godsend for these patients. And I've had so many patients thank me for just giving them those extra six months to be able to deal with the fact that they understand that they have a terminal disease rather than just going down within two to three months. That's great. That, that, that's a crazy statistic. It is. And it's not just, so the Canadians actually published the paper um, as well, showing the exact same data. So 60%, and that's in, you know, two Western countries with good healthcare. I, that's, an, that's, a, that's inexcusable. I mean, and I, and I think partly, you know, I think we're all to blame for that, right? Mm -hmm. I, because I, you know, I get so excited when we have clinicians on, Mike, because there's so many, like, to, you know, you've mentioned, you know, so many great things here, but, you know, there's so much work being done. And there, there is a, the one thing I will say, and I've said this before in the podcast, there is a massive collaborative effort going on in this space, which is really scary, mm -hmm. you know, because I think there's so many, so many, so many big institutions. And, and, you know, if you look at any problem, you know, how do you get, I, I think we're, we're at a tipping point in the sense that we could have a cascade of, of some major changes, major developments across the board, because there's so many big players in this space. Um, I, I you know, naturally there's never not enough. Right. Um, but you know, it, it, there's so much happening to say to someone, you know, yeah, just uh, don't do treatment. But you know, that six months, that that bridge, like look at lung cancer, right? Like what happened two years ago with that one drug where, yeah, as you said, like, mm -hmm. was it Keytruda? I forget the drug that was like really a game changer for stage four lung patients where, mm -hmm. you know, they were bringing people basically back to life, you know, with that mm -hmm. drug that was a, a revolutionary discovery in, in lung cancer, which, yep. you know, yep. is just, is just wild. So like that, that's not to say that that can't happen. Why can't that happen in pancreatic cancer with, with all the stuff going on, you know, to just kind of, and, and I get it. I'm not trying to be insensitive here. You know, some people just realize like, Hey, the, and you can't, you can't force them to do treatment, but there's so much more of an upside in doing the treatment and getting another year to, to even eight months to a year there could be a major breakthrough. There could be a new drug on the horizon that that potentially you could qualify in a clinical trial that would give you another year 
you know, of life and potentially oh, wow. the, the next game changer to come out. That's just so crazy that so many people just don't do treatment. Um, yeah, we got to do better. We got to do better in messaging that to patients. Um, and I know this is, uh, you know, easy for, for us to say, cause we're not the ones doing treatment and that is a personal decision, but you know, there is hope. There's a ton of optimism. There's a ton of work being done. And that's always been our, mes our, our message here, you know, is the longer you stay in the game. And for those that have talked to me about this, you know, the, the likelihood of a game changer happening in that ninth inning with two outs, um, you know, the bases are loaded and, you know, the pitch counts three, two, but you know what? could hit a home run and it could be a game exactly. changer. You could even hit a single, you know, and get that one run scored in. And, you know, that changes everything. There was a patient, sorry to jump in. No. There was a patient in one of the papers that were published. Uh, if you have ever talked about these uh, TREK inhibitors, TRK inhibitors, which uh, mutations in NTRK, NTRK occur in about 1% of all cancers and including in pancreas cancer. And um, there was a paper published about a handful of patients with uh, track mutation and track mutations in pancreatic cancer. And one of the patients famously was literally just sent to hospice when their molecular testing came back and they found one of these mutations. And amazingly, they were able to get on the drug and within a month, they felt normal again. It's crazy. We've had it. We have so had that a, was definitely the ninth inning patient. We've had a podcast. Uh, guest who similar experience. So he was BRCA and this mm -hmm. was going back. He was one of our, uh, he was in like the, the, the sixties, I think episode. And he was going up to Dana Farber. He lived here, here in Connecticut. And, um, Dr. Wolpen, who's up at, uh, Dana was his oncologist and said, let's try this, this drug. I think this could be a game changer. And his wife was on the podcast with him. And she said, you know, she was on the phone before that call. She was on the phone with the funeral home because she thought, you know, mm -hmm. he was going to pass and he didn't have enough strength to even lift his head off the pillow. And he came in to do the podcast and he looked like he was playing 18 holes of, uh, of golf <laughs> that day. And I'll tell you, he is still living a great life. But it all is because they realized he was a BRCA2 patient. They changed the mm -hmm. protocol and everything changed. And in, awesome. to this day, um, his scans are clean. He's still living a, a very good quality of life. I think he checks in every couple months with the team up there at Dana-Farber, but it, it was a game changer. That's awesome. Um, I got two things for you here. Uh, one last question, then we're going to share our audience where they could connect with you. But this last question for you. Again, all my questions are loaded, uh, but this is one that we ask all our guests. And there's no right or wrong answer to this, Mike, uh, but this is really your definition of how you define the term pancreatic cancer. How do I define it? I actually don't remember that I've been asked that question. Is this like, how do you define woman? <laughs> uh, well, sorry, I couldn't. Yeah. I'll try not to stay political. No, no, um, no. Yeah, let's. Uh, <laughs> no, we've asked this question to every guest on the Project Purple podcast, and I, I think it's just a great way to end the podcast. Um, you know, given your experience and your walk of life, um, you know how you would define it. Yeah. Well, so I, I would define it biologically and anatomically. Pancreatic cancer is a cancer that arises in the cells of the pancreas. There are different kinds of cells within the pancreas, but statistically speaking, 90 to 95% of the time, there are what we call ductal adenocarcinomas, 
um, the much, much more classic kind of uh, pancreatic cancer. And those are the ones that tend to be very fat, very aggressive, uh, learn how to spread very early on and are the ones for which we spent the vast majority of this conversation having. There are 5%, 5 to 10% of pancreatic cancers that do not fall under the category of classical adenocarcinomas. Those are mostly the neuroendocrine cancers, the kind that you know, Steve Jobs had, as we all refer to. Um, and those have an entirely different treatment plan, entirely different prognosis, a much better prognosis. Um, and so for, for a patient who's now been identified as having a mass in their pancreas, but we don't yet have any tissue, um, we're always kind of hoping that it's if they had to be struck with a cancer, that it would be a neuroendocrine cancer. But at the end of the day, we need a biopsy to be sure. And then there are 1% or less of very, very rare cancers that can arise in the pancreas, things like sarcomas and lymphomas. Um, but really a cancer, a pancreas cancer, the cancer that arises in the pancreas. Awesome. Mike, thank you for being a guest on the Project Purple podcast. This has been awesome. You've, uh, you've given out so many golden nuggets, as I like to say here with just mm -hmm. what's going on in the space. And, you know, I, I mean, there's some great statistics here. I've been taking notes the whole time that I've, I've learned a bunch of stuff that I didn't know about, you know, particularly in this genetic space, which is so, so important and so fascinating to me. Um, I mm -hmm. mentioned this on the podcast, I'm BRCA2 positive. So, you know, mm -hmm. I have a, an inherited risk care for this disease. So what the work you are doing, oh man, it is just awesome. And it is making a difference uh, to this community as a whole. If someone listening to this podcast heard something about a clinical trial, the work you're doing there at Hopkins, maybe they live in the area, maybe they have a family member that's just been diagnosed and want to reach out for a second opinion or learn more, where's the best place that they can connect with you? You know, I love hearing from patients and, I, and then they don't even have to become my patients. I'm happy just to feed the uh, uh, pancreatic cancer community information and get them connected to the right doctors across the country and really, quite frankly, across the world. So feel free to use my email. It's uh, M is in Michael, P is in Paul, I is in India, S is in Sam, H is in Harry, V is in Victor, A is in Apple, and the number one, so M-P-I-S-H-V-A-1 at jh.edu, johnshopkins.edu. Awesome. Mike, thank you for being a guest on the Project Pop. Project Purple podcast. Say that 10 times in a row on a Monday morning early before the caffeine is kicked in. Uh, but it has truly been an honor to have you on the Project Purple podcast. And thank you for all you do in the pancreatic cancer space. We need more clinicians like yourself pushing for change, pushing for further development in drugs and being the patient's biggest advocate. So thank you once again for being a guest on the Project Purple podcast. Great. It's been truly my pleasure. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. If you like what you hear today, feel free to share this podcast and follow us wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for making the Project Purple Podcast the number one pancreatic cancer podcast. Till next time, please be safe. And that's a wrap of another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. Mm -hmm.